would love to see you this coming Friday night at Dwell. Let's be honest, it's January and you don't have anything better going. Like, there's no, it's just cold outside, so we'll make sure it's warm in here. And uh, it really will be a great night. Uh, come on. And there's also nothing good streaming right now, so just make your Friday night plans to hang out with us. It'll be a beautiful time of uh, just being in worship and just this kind of open space to spend with the Lord. Um, I think it'll be really, really wonderful. Well, last fall, we started this series of teachings called Come Holy Spirit. In many ways, it's been a prayer designed to reorient our attention to the third member of the Trinity who is at work in our midst even now. Um, we worked through the Bible from beginning to end, highlighting the, the Spirit's work and now we're revisiting some of the familiar passages or the things we missed. And on today's docket, we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit and one in particular. So we've got quite a bit of ground to cover, so I'm going to just jump right in. If you've got a Bible in front of you, that will be helpful. Otherwise, our sermon notes are on the website. So let's head over to 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, Paul writes this. Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is also including the sisters, too, so don't let that throw you off. Let's unpack that phrase, spiritual gifts, briefly. Gordon Fee, a fantastic Pentecostal scholar, has a lot of helpful work on this term, spiritual gifts. He argues that the Greek noun Paul uses here, pneumatikon, might better be translated as things of the Spirit, or manifestations of the Spirit, or spirituals, or my favorite, the stuff the Spirit does. It's a little bit more lowbrow. And I actually prefer any of those translations over gifts of the Spirit. I just kind of feel like gifts of the Spirit has made it sound like we're imparted with this gift and we just use it whenever we please. It almost makes me think mutants for Jesus. Like you think like you de you've decided I've got the gift of prophecy and you just wield it willy-nilly. In some circles, there's this uh, multiple choice assessment often called a spiritual gifts inventory. Um, where you take this quiz and it's designed to help you identify what your spiritual gift is. Now, there are some genuine, well-meaning ministers and congregations who use that tool. So I don't mean to demean them. I just don't think that's what Paul is getting at when he's talking about spiritual gifts. It's not that there are some gifts we possess and some that we don't. Paul's point is that they all belong to the Spirit. The stuff the Spirit does are not tools you own to use as you please. They are loners that require you to walk in step with the Spirit. So what are the things the Spirit does? Paul has a list later in this same chapter. He mentions nine things. Messages of wisdom, messages of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, that's a cool one. Prophecy, <laughs> distinguishing between spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. If you look at this list, I hope you see why I think claiming ownership 
of any one of these nines is missing the point. Maybe you've heard someone say, I have the gift of faith, or I have the gift of prophecy, or I have discernment. Have you ever heard anyone claim the gift of miraculous powers? <laughs> I hope your next question would be prove it. <laughs> like, that's a crazy thing to claim ownership over. What I think Paul is trying to do is give language to what the Spirit can do through the life of a Jesus follower who is open to it. That we all have the potential to do all of it if we are open to it and earnestly seek it. I think the Spirit longs to use us in very specific and profound ways to demonstrate the love of God to others. It's not that we walk around with the gift of knowledge. It's that if we open ourselves up to the Spirit whispering something to us that we could never have known otherwise we demonstrate this gift of knowledge it's not that we walk around with the gift of healing it's that we open ourselves up to the possibility of the spirit healing someone when we lay a hand on their shoulder and pray over them it's not that we walk around with the gift of prophecy it's that we open ourselves up to the possibility that God might speak through us to another Paul's emphasis is that these are all gifts of grace in that in there, there is no room for ego or boasting. Now at the bottom of this list is a phenomenon that has, uh, let's say, some baggage associated with it. And that is the gift of tongues. And I know I just lost 75% of you. So here's, here's all I ask. Stay with me. I just mentioned a taboo topic, but hear me out. I think it's one that is important for us to at least explore. So if I lost you, let me just ask that you go on a journey with us. As followers of Jesus and students of the scriptures, we should at least desire to understand at some level why people spoke in tongues in the Bible. And so I just want to spend a little time understanding this strange phenomenon of tongues. But before, let me address a few things. First, you may have grown up in a theological tradition that discouraged tongues. Maybe this practice was actively taught against. And all I want to do is examine the biblical evidence and let you come to your own conclusions. I promise if at the end of this you disagree with me, totally fine. Or maybe you have been in an environment in which this gift was used coercively or abusively, or manipulatively. And I just want to say I am genuinely sorry that was your experience. Our hope is to reframe this conversation and possibly offer a more redemptive view of this gift. Or, and this might be the largest group, maybe you're just weirded out by the idea altogether and just oblivious to what I'm talking about and you're like, dang it, I thought I found a great church. <laughs> Turns out... Not so much. I'm just kidding. My invitation in this short time is just, would you suspend your suspicion for just 20 minutes and embrace just a little bit of curiosity? Like back when we started this teaching series, when we started praying, come Holy Spirit, I stated up front that one of our desired outcomes was to be radically open to God. 
I meant that, and I still mean that, that personally and as a community, we want to be people who are open to surprising, new, and unexpected ways God can show up in our midst. And I would argue the practice of speaking in tongues definitely fits under the radical part of radically open to God. So now, brace yourself for a radically personal confession. For almost 20 years, tongues have been a part of my daily prayer life. I say that not to boast or to weird you out. I say that more to say I have benefited and been edified by this strange gift. And as a pastor of this community, I want to explore the strange and offer whatever I can to you in your discipleship to Jesus. And for some reason, this strange practice is a part of the Jesus story. So I just want to do some work to at least understand it. So with that confession, here's the plan for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. We're going to visit four different passages the first three in the book of Acts, just to get a lay of the land. And then we'll camp out in 1 Corinthians 14 with the longest teaching on the subject. And then we will prepare to respond to what the Spirit is doing, and I'll offer some pastoral guidance. And to be clear, there will be no wild babbling at the end. There will be no being slain in the Spirit. The snakes will come out, not come out, I promise. So let's start with Acts chapter 2, what Hannah just read for us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I just want to point out a few things of note. First, if you'll remember from our survey of the Old Testament, before this moment right here, only certain people had access to God's Spirit. Prophets, priests, national leaders. But this moment marks a new era of the Spirit in which all people who pledge their loyalty to Jesus become recipients of His Holy Spirit. So this is the new age in which God will not work through the few, but through the many. Second, those who experienced this phenomenon were declaring the mighty works of God in languages they had never learned. Let's head over to our next passage in Acts 10. You likely know this story. The apostle Peter receives instructions in a vision to go to the home of Cornelius, a Roman captain. And when Peter gets to Cornelius' home, he starts to tell the gospel story. And this is what uh, Luke writes in verse 44. When Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. The Spirit wouldn't be limited to ethnic Jews. And once again, recipients of the Spirit spoke in unlearned languages declaring the wonders of God. One more stop, Acts 19. 
Paul meets these disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus, and he's like, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they're clueless. They're like, we didn't even know that was an option. And then he says, let's pray together. The Holy Spirit fills them, and they speak in unlearned languages and prophesy. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and began, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Congratulations, you have read all of the material in Acts concerning this phenomenon in tongues. So a few things of note and of clarification. First, there are 57 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. You know how many mention tongues? Three. So that is right about 6% of the Spirit's work has anything to do with this phenomenon of tongues. Which is to say that tongues is not the whole of the Spirit's ministry. The Spirit can and will empower in any way he will. So we will not be putting the Spirit in some theoretical or theological box. Second, there are a minority of fringe Pentecostal groups that claim that you are not saved if you do not speak in tongues. This is categorically right, flat out false. There are many brothers and sisters in the faith, likely many in this room, who do not speak in tongues and are a part of God's kingdom. So that is flat out not the case. Third, some say phenomena like tongues or any of the things of the Spirit are not for today. This is a position known as cessationism. It's simply a position that believes the Spirit stopped working or doing miraculous things when the apostles died. And while there are still cessationist pastors and congregations, you'll be hard-pressed to find any solid academic or theologian that would actually take this position because its argument is incredibly flimsy. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul teaches that the gifts of the Spirit will pass away when Christ returns, but the love is the eternal, but love, excuse me, is the eternal gift of the Spirit. And Christ has not yet returned, in case you didn't know. Um, we're still waiting on that, and thus it would follow that we are still experiencing the power of the Spirit poured out on us today. So with those things in mind, let's jump over to kind of the text we're going to spend the most time in, 1 Corinthians 14. So if you would, turn with me there. As we jump into it, Paul is offering a compare, a compare and contrast between prophecy and tongues. And he's making the argument that in the weekly gathering, prophecy is superior to tongues. Now, the Corinthian church had this reputation for wild gatherings. Wild stuff happening in what would have been this gathering. They had this culture of competitive one-upsmanship. So their worship gatherings became full of interruptions and ego. Oftentimes interrupting one another saying, I have the next most important thing from God. And it seems as if the gift of tongues was being used performatively to demonstrate some kind of superior spirituality. And clearly, this is, that is not an environment that is conducive to learning the ways of the servant king Jesus. Like, 
a competitive, ego-driven use of a gift is obviously not what Jesus or the Spirit intends for his followers to experience. Now, as we jump into this text, there's a very clear difference between us and the Corinthian church. Uh, None of us are speaking in tongues right now. I haven't spoken tongues into the mic. No one's interrupting the teaching or using these gifts for clout or ego or pride. So we are approaching this passage from the exact opposite position of the Corinthian church. Our temptation isn't to wild gatherings. Our temptation is to lifeless gatherings. So let's pick up in verse 1. Paul writes this. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, the stuff the Spirit does, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands, understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Let's define tongues. Now, tongues is a really weird word for this, mostly because of the large organ in your mouth. Like, the visual of this is just fairly unpleasant. But in in Paul's original text, what was uh, translated tongues just means languages. So by way of definition, tongues are a form of prayer and praise expressed to God in languages you have not learned or understand. N.T. Wright, one of the premier New Testament scholars and a tongue speaker himself, defines it this way. Tongues refers to the gift of speech, which through making sounds and using apparent or even actual language, somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. All that to say, when you hear tongues, think unlearned languages directed to God. Verse 2. For no one understands, the one speaking in tongues, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. The gift of unlearned languages or the gift of tongues is this mysterious communication between us and God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the nature of not learning something is that we do not understand it. These languages do not make sense to the speaker. So... What might these other languages be? A few instances suggest that they might be human languages that the speaker doesn't know. Take Acts 2, for example. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? If you talk to anyone who's been raised in a tradition that practices unlearned languages, you'll hear many stories like this. One that hits close to home in Cassie and I's family is that in the early 1900s, Cassie's great-grandmother was responding to the work of the Spirit at an altar, and she began speaking in tongues at that altar. And there was someone nearby who asked how she knew Mandarin. She responded that she did not know that language, and that man was puzzled because he claimed she had just been praying in Mandarin. And he began to translate it for her. And because of this experience, she left the USA at the ripe age of 19 and became a missionary in China. So these languages might be that of other nations and completely unknown to the speaker. 
Another theory is that these are the languages of spiritual being or angelic beings. Paul writes this just a chapter before in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels. So maybe these are just the languages of angelic beings yet to be translated and learned by humans. An interesting little tidbit is that linguists have spent thousands of hours analyzing tongue speech in attempt to find patterns or meaning in it. And they simply can't find any meaningful pattern in tongue speech. So there is a possibility it's just gibberish produced by our linguistic exposure, our muscle memory, and our subconscious. And I don't know the answer to any of this, but my guess is it's a messy combination of these things. There's a mystery at work that we will never, we will likely never understand. But the point that Paul's trying to make is that the speaker doesn't have to know what is at work. There is some kind of mysterious prayer happening, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's go to verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Now this is where Paul really gets into the comparison between tongues and prophecy. He argues that speaking in an unknown language is not particularly helpful to the church community. And that's a pretty fairly intuitive thought, right? Like you're not having trouble following the thought here. Without a common language, the meaning of the message is lost. Like, imagine if I were to get up here and speak Somalian. It wouldn't benefit you unless you know Somalian. It wouldn't benefit you unless you have an understanding of the language. Paul's point is that love is communicated through common language. Ben Witherington writes this, Intelligibility is the reason that Paul prefers other gifts to speaking in tongues in public worship. The center of church gatherings should be love shared by its people for God and for one another. The stuff of the Spirit should be a part of the gathered church, but it is always directed towards love. We are not seeking the spectacular for the spectacular in itself. We're seeking the Spirit so that we might love one another better. We're seeking the Spirit so that we might learn to love God better. For all of these reasons, Paul prefers the gift of prophecy, which is speaking on behalf of God to others. It is preferable in the church gathering. Remember, Paul is addressing the wild church gatherings of the Corinthians, not their personal prayer lives. So Paul is not dismissive of speaking in tongues. He is warning against its misuse as the gathered church. You guys doing okay? Like I know we just went through a ton of scripture. Let me, I'm going to bring this to a bit of a close. With all of that, it would be easy for us to say, see, Paul isn't interested in us speaking in tongues. He wants us to prophesy. 
Or it would also be easy to say, like, what's the point? What's the point of this? And I think Paul would say, it's for you. The point is for your benefit. Speaking in unlearned languages has some kind of building up effect. Here are a few things Paul writes about tongues. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks to God. Verse 2. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Verse 4. I want you to all speak in tongues. Verse 5. Like that one's pretty straightforward, right? Let's jump down to verse 14. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind also. When one speaks in these unknown languages, the mind is in this state of neutral or what Paul calls unfruitful. This does not mean that unknown languages are unbeneficial. Remember, Paul makes the argument, he wants it to build you up and encourage the soul of the individual. Nor is this some weird horror film trance or uncontrollable outbursts. Because remember, the whole point of this passage is discipline and order in the gathering. So this isn't some wild, uncontrollable, like, you're possessed by something. I think Paul imagines tongues as an experience that bypasses the messiness of our mind and allows one's soul to correct, connect directly with God. Paul mentions praying and singing, these almost guttural, visceral expressions being poured out to God in the power of the Spirit. In that last song, you notice like Christina led us in O's. Can anybody define for me what O's mean? <laughs> for some of that, that O is an expression of joy. For some of us, it's that deep yearning for God to hear us once again. We don't have an exact definition for it, but there is emotion attached to it. There's a connection that's still happening even without a definition associated with it. Many, if not most, scholars assume Paul is thinking of this practice when he writes, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Groanings too deep for words. Somehow in unlearned languages, the Spirit of God interacts with the human spirit to communicate, to pour out, and to pray the deepest longings of the human soul. Beyond words, it's this state of deep connection with the Spirit. I think it offers us something similar to what we experience in sports or athletics or exercise. If you've done yoga or gone for a run, there's this moment after you stop thinking about how much you want to stop where your mind goes quiet and you have this just crystal clear focus on what's at hand. And I think in some ways this 
expression allows this strange effect of bypassing the messiness of our head and what's going on between our ears and allows us to pour out our emotions, our brokenness, our aches to our God. So what does this strange practice have to offer us? First, it builds up the believer. Speaking in tongues offers us this outlet to connect with God distinct from our cluttered minds. I mean, how often do you sit down for a quiet time in the morning? You've read scripture, you've had your Chemex, you've prayed everything you can possibly think about, and you've been there a total of three minutes. <laughs> Practicing speaking in tongues offers this practice of connection, connecting with God in an incredibly embodied way. Praying in tongues also helps us worship God. Have you ever come to the edge of the Pacific Ocean or walked the banks of the Sea of Galilee or wandered through the Garden of the Gods where the world is aflame with God's power and the English language just simply falls short? Often a sunset or a beautiful day or just a sense of God's goodness will take me and I'll offer what limited prayers I can and then I'll be out of words. And that's where the Spirit begins to communicate my worship, filling in where my language falls short. And then praying in tongues helps us in times of confusion. When the breakneck pace of life or the latest news cycle leaves your head spinning and your vocabulary unsatisfactory, unknown languages gives your soul an outlet, groans too deep for words. This is a practice that fills in the gaps of our knowledge and the limits of the English language. And while it might not register in your mind, it nevertheless builds one's soul. And this is verse 18 where Paul drops this little number. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. <laughs> nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. It's theorized that the Corinthians may have assumed Paul didn't speak in these unlearned languages because he didn't do it around them. Because the Corinthians were vying for attention, it's speculated they were arrogant enough to believe themselves more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. So for him to say, I speak in tongues more than all of you, is to humble them, centering love in their gathering, not tongues. And then Paul follows this up to say, I'd rather speak five words that are intelligible than a bajillion words that are unintelligible. I speak in unknown languages on almost a daily basis, but it is better for me to say the three words, Jesus is Lord, than fill hours of your time with something you don't understand. It's better for me to say God is love than for me to stand up here and babble. I would rather say three words you understand than thousands that you don't. Because for Paul, the center of the gathered church is love, not tongues. Last verse, verse 39. So my brothers and sisters, 
earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. This is the fourth time Paul says earnestly or eagerly desire. Pursue love and eagerly desire all the stuff the Spirit does. To receive the gift of unlearned languages does not make you better. It does not make you more spiritual. It is simply a new outlet for you to connect with God. Tongues are a means, not an end. So Paul's invitation to the Corinthians, and consequently for us, it is to examine our desires and to reorient them back to God and to the stuff he does through the Spirit. So I've just taken you on a whirlwind viewing of all the material related to tongues. And we're not going to end this gathering with some crazy, wild experience. Most of you are nervous, so just... You might not hear anybody speak in tongues today. But one of the things I wanted to do with this is offer something that's been really beneficial in my life. Something that allows our soul to be connected with God in a way that our mind just can't fathom. There's a mystery at play. But if we're honest, some of us do not eagerly desire this gift because of a spiritual trauma, an emotional trigger, a theological tradition, or you're just weirded out by the prospect altogether. And I get that. But my reasoning for beginning with this gift is not because of its priority or because it's the best gift. Paul is incredibly clear that it is not. A reason for this is just to open up the possibility that God might be doing something surprising in our midst. That he might be inviting you into something you don't quite fully understand. And that there can be a love that transcends the English language. There can be a deeper connection available just simply by being open to it. So the goal is not to get everybody in this room to speak in tongues at the same time. It's just to open up the possibility that this might be something reasonable for us to consider. For those of us who've grown up in the States, we have a mind that's been baptized in the hyper-rational. We lead with our head in every decision-making process, and we only make decisions based on the perceived hard, cold facts. Thus, many of us struggle to accept the invitation to mystery that we are invited to explore. And this little practice of speaking in unknown languages is a small step towards the mystery. And if you're still struggling with this idea of speaking in tongues, my suggestion would be to start just processing it out loud, maybe with a microchurch friend, maybe with a pastor, or just praying through what bothers you about this. I'd love to spend some time talking with you if you just want to know more. And I want to be very clear. You are not less if you opt out. You are not less than if you're like, I just, I got to leave that on the table right now. And you are not a second-rate Christian. I know I've spent 30 minutes on the subject of tongues, but the main point of this passage is love, not tongues. The gift is intimacy with God, not speaking in tongues. So as with everything, this is invitational. But there are some of you who eagerly desire this. And you're asking how. 
And I think as we walk into this practice, you might be surprised when you start just poking around how many members of this community have actually found this really beneficial in their life. I grew up in an environment where this was a well-known experience for Christians, and so at 14, I had a trusted leader lay a hand on me, and I experienced this bizarre gift, and I've practiced it ever since. So here's my suggestion if this is something you'd like to pursue. First, create space. Just create space in order to connect with God. For the last four months, we've been gathering, and at the end of each service, we've been creating this laboratory moment, this moment for us to feel and know the Spirit moving. So create space. Second, ask God. Ask that God would once again fill you with his Spirit. And then third, take take a shot. Like, I don't know that there's anything more, like, to it than just try. It might come first as one word. It might come as a phrase. It'll come in staggering, halting moments. But it's just something that you're invited to keep trusting and leaning and let God just work and bubble up in your midst. And then just practice it. In times of private or intense prayer, in times of like worship or just giving your adoration to God in response times with an appropriate volume, of course. Like, I'll oftentimes pray in tongues here on the front row and doing it under my breath as not to distract anybody, but it's just a moment for me to go beyond the cluttered mess of my mind. And I'm saying that a lot because it is cluttered up here. And I venture to guess that many of you experience that same thing as I do, You come into the worship moment and you're thinking about that thing you did in second grade, not like (laughs) the opportunity to connect with the God of the universe. And so this is just a subtle step towards connecting with the Spirit. So keep asking, keep knocking, keep pursuing. Our God's invitation is to this ongoing relationship. So there is a place for intentional effort and pursuit. This is not earning, but effort. Worship team, would you join me? With the time remaining, we're just going to create some space. Again, the goal of this space is not for a bunch of people to start speaking in tongues. Take a breath. I can see the like tense, like, (laughs) this is going to be awkward. I promise it won't. The goal is to tune in to what the Spirit is doing in our midst. And that might mean, might include the reception of a gift like tongues in your prayer life. It also might be a nudge to text that family member. It might be an invitation to change your attitude towards a coworker. It might be to move from your seat and lay a hand on that person in your microchurch who's struggling. What's going on in this space is not myopic. It's not like tongues or nothing. It is opening ourselves up to what the Spirit might be doing in our midst. So once more, it bears saying that the best gift is connecting with the Spirit. Tongues is just a means to that. It is not the end. So if you would, let's stand together. Here in a moment, I'll pray, come Holy Spirit, and we'll take 
60 seconds in the best quiet we can imagine. Someone might walk through the door. It might squeal. There might be a siren come by. Someone might kick over their coffee, and it's chaos. But for about 60 seconds, we're just going to take quiet. This isn't coercive. This isn't manipulative. It's just a moment for us to be in quiet, receptive to what God might be doing in our midst. And then Corbin will come up and, and lead us in confession and communion. If you're not sure what to do in this 60 seconds, just keep praying, maybe under your breath, come Holy Spirit. Maybe as a way of positioning your body to mimic your heart, it's helpful to just put your hands out in front of you as if you're receiving a gift. Just the simple act of surrender before God. So let's prepare our hearts. Come Holy Spirit. Father, you know our anxious thoughts. You know the musings of our minds. You know the chaos that goes on between our ears. We just pray in this season of opening ourselves up to your spirit that there would just be a deeper level of communion amongst us. That we would long to know you deeper. We would long to be known by you more fully. May we be a people radically open to what you're doing in our midst. May we be a people who are willing to step into the mystery of faith. It's in the name of the Father. Son and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.